stoning. Now, boy, that kind of criticism is rough. <laughs> I guess they're all dead. They didn't. They weren't able to carry out their uh, uh, designs against Paul, and so he was taken under guard to the fortress at Caesarea, the big, impressive, uh, resplendent uh, capital for the Roman government in that area. And there he was in prison for about, oh, at least two years, and probably more. He was uh, first under Felix, whom we looked at the last time, one of the judges who heard him. And you remember that Paul bore a great testimony to Felix, so much so that when he reasoned with him about his life, Felix trembled. But he told Paul to go his way, that when he had a more convenient season, he would send for him. Now, no more convenient season came, and Felix never sent for Paul that we know of again. And then when uh, Felix, who had had a lot of trouble with the Jewish people in that area, left, even though he knew Paul to be innocent of a charge of sedition, that is, raising a rebellion against Rome, he left Paul in prison as a favor to the Jews that were there. Uh, Felix was not a good person at all. Well, when Felix had gone out, another Roman governor came in, and his name is Portius Festus. And he was uh, not an unkindly man. He was a good civil servant of Rome. And so that's where we pick up today. Paul uh, is in court there, and uh, Portius Festus, the Roman, uh, does not uh, know as much as the Jewish puppet king, Herod Agrippa II, who was there, about Jewish uh, feelings and their religious impressions. And so Paul had appealed to go to Rome. And once you made that appeal, you had to be sent to be tried at Caesar's uh, place, the emperor's place in Rome. Paul was a Roman citizen. And uh, so the Roman governor had the responsibility of sending him, but he didn't have specific charges that would make sense to a Roman to write down and send. So he asks Agrippa, who is the puppet king, if he will assist him in writing uh, a charge that might be sent or some instructions about Paul. So Paul was called into a very impressive audience chamber, a remarkably beautiful place, uh, marble with centurions with legionnaires, with impressive people in the nobility all surrounding, and uh, he is invited to make a speech in which he gives a defense of his life. I want to pick up at, at his conversion, which begins at about um, verse 13, if you look at the little King James part that I've printed there for you. At midday, O king, he's telling about his fighting against the Christians. I saw in the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun shining round about me and them which journeyed with me. And when we were fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It's hard for thee to kick against the prick. 
And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness, both of these things which thou hast seen and of those things which, in which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision, but showed first unto them at Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coasts of Judea and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. For these causes the Jews caught me in the temple and went about to kill me. Having therefore obtained help of God, I continue unto this day witnessing to small and great, saying none other things than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come, that Christ should suffer, and that he should be the first that should rise from the dead and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. And as he thus spake for himself, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, thou art beside thyself, much learning doth make thee mad. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak forth the words of truth and soberness. For the king knoweth of these things before whom also I speak freely. For I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him. For this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? I know that thou believest. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Almost, Thou persuadest me to be a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that not only thou, but also all that hear me this day were both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these bonds. Amen. May God bless to our hearts this reading from his word. <coughs> Let us pray. O oh God, our Heavenly Father, we rejoice in the freedoms which we experience in this land and pray for a greater sense of responsibility in the wise use of them. We pray that you will add your blessings to each of us now as we avail ourselves of the opportunity of looking into your word and then seeing what the Holy Spirit will apply from that word to our own minds and hearts and lives. Each one of us needs you. We need you even more than we're willing to admit. So help us now to understand that need and to be open and receptive to your truth so that when we go out of church today, we'll go different from the way in which we came in because your spirit has worked grace in our hearts through your word. And now take these gifts which we dedicate to thee and supervise their use to the end that they may bring glory and honor to Jesus Christ, 
in whose name they are dedicated. Amen. We have seen something of the scene, and I've given you a little, some little notes that I found to be very helpful about it in the bulletin so that you can study it and write your own sermon on it later. Um, Paul begins his defense very courteously. Uh, he refers back to his early life. He wants this king before whom... This is Paul's finest hour. And this is one of the greatest of all of the passages in the New Testament. Uh, this is a tremendous scene. And so he begins telling his life story. Luke must have felt this tremendously important because three times in the Acts of the Apostles this story is given. Each time there are some details uh, that we see that are brought out, but always for a reason. Now what about your story? And what about your own life? If you were asked to give an account of your life and your faith in Jesus Christ, your belief in God, what would you say? You ought to be able to give an answer for the faith that you have in Jesus Christ. And so Paul states his. He goes back to the time of his childhood and speaks of the fact that he had been raised a Pharisee. That means separatist. That he was a strict super Jew. Uh, that he was very, very strict in his faith. And then he is willing to admit that there was a time in his life when he did many things that were contrary to Jesus of Nazareth. And I'm sure that when he gets to this part in his speech, his eyes must have filled with mist and tears because he begins to say to the king, my manner of life from my youth, which was at the first among my own nation at Jerusalem, know all the Jews which knew me from the beginning. They would have still known him and remembered him. And if they would testify that after the most strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee, and now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto their fathers, unto which promise our twelve tribes instantly served God day and night, and for which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. He's saying that his faith is a continuation of the faith of the Jews. And then he goes on to say, Why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? This ought to be nailed up on some seminary walls today because there are people who try to say that you can have a faith in Jesus Christ without believing in the objective reality of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Paul makes a very sensible claim. Why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should be able to raise the dead? As a Pharisee, he would have believed in a general resurrection from the dead but he did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah and that he rose from the dead until he met him on the road to Damascus. There were Sadducees who were also in the Jewish community, but they did not believe in a resurrection. 
But Paul asks a very challenging question. Why should it be thought an incredible thing with you that God should raise the dead? If God is God and he is the author of life, why can he not raise the dead? And then he says, I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. One remarkable thing about the Christian faith is that he is willing to admit the evil things that he did before he knew Christ. In Scotland there was a great preacher whose name was Brownlow North. He had been a wicked and evil person before his conversion to Christ. He had been the father of a number of illegitimate children. He had done some shameful and disgraceful things. And he once came back into his own community to preach. And when he came to the pulpit to preach, someone had put a note on the pulpit. And they said, if you dare to speak in this church today, I'm going to stand up and tell the whole congregation what I know about what you've done in this community. He picked up the note and read it to the congregation. And he said, I can tell you what I've done in this community. And it's evil and it's shameful. But that was before I knew Jesus Christ as my Savior. And since I have come to know Christ as my Savior, the blood of Christ has paid for my sins, and I have been forgiven, and I am a changed man, and my life proves it. He put the note down and he preached and said that what had happened to him could happen to anyone in the congregation. Well, Paul here admits what he did in seeking to destroy the name of Christ, which things I also did in Jerusalem. Many of the saints that I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, and when they were put to death, I gave my vote against them. He was there when Stephen was stoned to death. I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly mad, and the original language here is like a, a ravaging beast that savages something which it, it has already killed. And being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even unto strange cities. And that's when we picked it up. Whereupon I went to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, and at midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun, shining round about me and them which journeyed with me. And that's when he was struck by the light and heard the voice. And that's when he met the living Christ and his life was changed. Here he tells the story of his conversion. What would you do if you were in a scene like this? Would you tell someone else about your conversion if you were invited to the White House? You were to sit with the president and members of his cabinet? Or do you even tell your neighbor about your faith in Jesus Christ? Or the person that you work beside? Or do you ever share it with anyone else? Paul, here, is more concerned about bearing a faithful witness to Christ to King Agrippa, this Jew, who had some knowledge of the Christian faith, 
and to Festus, this Roman governor, than he is about his own freedom. His own freedom is not the concern to him that the promotion of the cause of Christ is. So that's what we see come shining through here. There must have been a tremendous thing that happened. When Paul spoke, the whole atmosphere in that great audience chamber which had been built by King Agrippa's grandfather, the whole atmosphere changed. This little hunchback, crooked-nosed Jew with manacles dangling from his wrists and having been jailed for two years, and who would have had calluses from those weights and chains? He speaks with a fervor in white, hot, staccato sentences. He begins to tell of his conversion to Jesus Christ and of that light on the road and that voice that spoke to him. So much so that Festus, the Roman governor, says, Paul, you're raving. Your learning has driven you mad. And then with admirable restraint, Paul stops. And he says, I am not mad, Your Excellency. I am speaking words of soberness and words of truth. I wish we had some Christians that were that mad today, don't you? I'd like to be one of them. Once someone came to King George of England and complained about General Wolfe, who had been quite victorious up in Canada in the Battle of Quebec. And some um, general complained to the king, who was really jealous of, of General Wolfe, and said to King George, uh, this general of yours is mad. And King George is reported to have replied to him that I wish he would bite some of my other generals so that they would be mad too and be able to accomplish what he has done. Well, here is Paul, and if he is mad, I would like to be mad too. Think about that for a moment. They said Columbus was mad when he set sail to come to a new world. There are a lot of people, they said that Pasteur and Jenner were mad when they brought great relief to untold millions of people down through the ages. Don't be afraid of being called mad because of your faith. And they even said it of Jesus Christ. His family one time came to take him away and they said he is beside himself. That's just other words for uh, mad. In fact, the Greek here for mad means wheels that are turning. That's where you get that motion when you say someone is... Mm. Oh. Uh, it, it's uh, it's uh, a mania is actually what it is here. Uh, and this is an interesting thing that he should have been called that. Has anyone ever called you mad because of your faith in Jesus Christ? Because of your love for him? And your faithfulness to him in the midst of this audience here? That kind of faith is what we need today. The flowers placed on the communion table today are given 
in loving memory and to the glory of God. In remembrance of Dr. Geza Shoves, a man who loved Jesus Christ tremendously and who was faithful to, to him in the midst of all of the persecution that existed in occupied Hungary, who kept many Jewish children from being killed and who aided many other people. There would have been people who would have called him mad because of the sacrifice he made for his faith in Jesus Christ. But people who know Jesus Christ never have their life the same anymore. And Paul found that here. Said that here. And he got it. Got called mad by Festus. But then look at the other king. Agrippa. His grandfather was the one who decreed that all of the infants in the city of Bethlehem and around its surroundings should be killed in an effort to kill the Christ child. Another member of his family had been that mad, sensuous man who had decreed that John the Baptist should be beheaded in order to keep a drunken oath that he made. And he himself is here with Bernice, a sister in an incestuous relationship with her. And yet he had some knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures, and Paul knew it. And so Paul works on that fact by saying to him, do you believe the prophets, King Agrippa? He had cited these things from the life of Jesus, how the Messiah would suffer and die, and how he had been raised from the dead. And when Festus dismiss, dismisses it as madness, then Paul turns to Agrippa and says, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. He wanted him to believe so much. And then the next passage that's uttered is one that is very difficult to translate. We have a son who's quite good at languages, at, and I talked to him last night on the phone, and we talked about this passage of Scripture and about the various translations of it down through, I looked through, I suppose, 50 years of books uh, trying to trace down the various ways in which it's translated. One will translate it as if it were sarcastic. Do you think you're going to make a Christian out of me? And someone else translates it as though it were a joke. But I actually think you cannot get to the full meaning of this. A.T. Robertson, one of the greatest Greek scholars we ever produced in America, and James S. Stewart, one of the greatest preachers I ever heard in my life, and one of the great teachers of the New Testament, says you cannot translate this unless you get the atmosphere of that scene. And when you catch that scene and that pleading in Paul's voice, and you catch Paul saying to Agrippa, I know you believe. 
he knows that he almost has Agrippa in the kingdom. And I think that Agrippa wistfully replied, much more of this, Paul, and you'll be making a Christian out of me. I've talked to people that way. I'm thinking of a doctor who is dead now, a brilliant doctor from the University of Pennsylvania Medical School, one of the best trained men I ever knew in my life. I used to talk to him about faith in Christ and I could get him right to the point. And then he would push me aside. And he would push aside what I said. It wasn't because he had any intellectual stumbling block that kept him from believing. It was because he did not wish to turn his life over to the will of Christ. Five minutes more, and you would have had me, said a reporter one time to Gypsy Smith when he witnessed to him about faith in Jesus Christ. I felt that I was letting go, but he fought it away. And this is something of what occurs here. In a very short time, J.B. Phillips, by the way, translates that much more of this, Paul, and you'll be making a, a Christian out of me. And then Paul replies, I would to God that whether it took a short time or a long time, that not only you, King Agrippa, but that everyone in this room were like me, except for these chains. Now that really brings a challenge to us in our Christian faith, doesn't it? Would you like for other Christians to be like you? Or are you so ill-tempered and disgruntled and horrible that you don't want them to be like you? But he appealed to his own life and said, I could wish that you were like me, except for these chains. What a moment. He wanted to give them peace. He wanted to give them forgiveness. He wanted to give to them what Christ has to offer to us, salvation. Salvation that really works, that we desperately need, and that we need in this world in which we live today, this crazy, mixed-up world in which we live. Perhaps I can show something of how crazy it is and how important it is to bear a testimony to Christ by telling of a man who did use this moment that he had before some people of high authority to be faithful to Jesus Christ. I was right here in Montreat in October 1962 when the crisis came over Cuba and the missiles were in place uh, there and President Kennedy had ordered the blockade and I remember our oldest child at that time looked into the television set and burst into tears as he saw uh, film clips from a helicopter that was photographing ships that were sailing toward Cuba. I remember people calling me from Miami 
saying that they thought they might ought to move up here to Montreat in the mountains to get away from Miami because great forces of troops were being assembled there. I think we do not realize how close we actually came to war at that time. This book by Paul Johnson, a very brilliant historian from Oxford and very carefully documented, will make your blood run cold at that point. On October the 22nd, all American missile crews were placed on maximum alert. Some 800 B-47s, 550 B-52s, 70 B-58s were prepared with bomb bays closed for immediate takeoff from their dispersal positions. Over the Atlantic were 90 B-52s carrying multi-megaton bombs. Nuclear warheads were activated on 100 Atlas 50 Titans and 12 Minuteman missiles, and on American carriers, submarines, and overseas bases. All commands were placed in a state of DEFCON 2, Defense Condition 2, the highest state of readiness next to war itself. Robert Kennedy spoke of 60 million Americans killed and as many Russians or more. Khrushchev himself claimed that in arguing with his own military that he warned of the death of 500 million human beings. Now that's how tense that moment was. You know what one of the signals of the breakdown was? A man by the name of Jerome Hines, a Christian, a singer for the Metropolitan Opera Company, was in Moscow performing in their famous theater. Jerome Hines had been apprised by the American Embassy in Moscow of the tenseness of the situation, and he, a devout Christian, had prayed with all of his heart that God would use him in some way in giving his performance there in Moscow to show something of Christ. And in a scene in Boris Gudinov, the opera in which he is, there's a dying scene of that man. He put himself into that scene, he said, as he had never done before. And who should have been at the opera that night? But Nikita Khrushchev himself. Later, he did an unthinkable thing for a time of tension unless you're willing to use it as a signal. He came from where he was to where Jerome Hines was when the opera had finished and embraced him and hugged him. The reporters who picked up on it and the people from the embassy who picked up on it knew that this was some kind of signal. Some kind of signal that some reasonable thing might be done, and that they might break away from the path of war. Jerome Hines was faithful before a crowd to Jesus Christ, and it may have played a part in making a man come back from the brink. People in Washington were working, people in Moscow were working. We live in a dangerous world. And above everything else, we need to be close to Jesus Christ and faithful to him, whether we witness before a president 
or the head of another government or to the person next to us, we must use the opportunity that we have to use and use it faithfully to show people that God has come into this world in Jesus Christ and that he offers to us forgiveness and eternal salvation and peace. Bow in prayer. Before I pray, I want to say this. I wish there was another verse in the Bible that said that Agrippa did believe what Paul said. He was evidently moved. For he spoke seriously with Festus, and they both agreed that Paul might have been set free had he not appealed to Rome. So there was a great seriousness about it all. And life consists of opportunities that come that we either accept and use or turn away from. This may be your opportunity to make some commitment of your life to Christ. Just give as much of yourself as you know how to give to as much of him as you understand. You don't have to know it all now. Maybe a time of rededication and of recommitment and a desire to be a more faithful Christian then take a fresh hold on him and let that staleness of your faith go away as you've seen the reality of one man's faith today. Let us pray. Father, you know every heart here, and you know us better than we know how to describe ourselves to you. And you pray that you will take these feelings that come to us when we realize that life does become stale sometimes, and sometimes we don't realize the absolute reality of the truths in Scripture which we've read this morning and how much more important it is to be faithful to you than to occupy our lives with such trivial things as we often fill them up with. And so we pray that you will work in us a work of faith and enable us so to believe in Jesus Christ that we shall go from the chapel today refreshed by the power of your Spirit and determined to use our lives for your glory. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our Keeper and Guide, be and abide with you all now and forevermore.